Hi, I'm Tracy. I'm April. And this is Killer Spirits. episode 60. Welcome to 60. We're so excited we made it here. We're excited to be here today too. We have a a two-parter that for the 60 and 61st episode. So buckle up guys. <laughs> I feel like every time there's a two-parter I'm a little nervous. Why? It's usually bad. It's bad. And I tried to make this a one-parter because I fucking hate this guy. But then I just, it just wasn't going to happen. I needed to give this story two parts. See, that's what I'm worried about. Um, because remember, if everyone recalls the Vampire of Sacramento. Oh, God. It's one of the worst <laughs> stories I've ever On week told. two, I was like, why is this <laughs> happening again? Why am I still living this nightmare oh, two weeks later? Oh, my Yes, but sometimes, you know, you just can't do it in one. Yeah, sometimes there's just too many things to talk about. Yeah, but we have a good drink today. We do. You want to talk the about classic. it? Classic. It is a classic, actually. Um, with a little bit of a twist because we used something special. Uh, we're calling this one today the Dirty Wanderer. Yes, because this guy was a dirty fucking wanderer. <laughs> he was a dirty, stinky, disgusting wanderer. Yeah. Um. And but it's really just a play on a dirty martini. So we used for two drinks. Four ounces of our favorite Sipsmith lemon drizzle gin. So good. Incredible. I mean, martinis with, I mean, the bottle's almost gone. I know. I feel like we just got I made martinis <laughs> last weekend for everybody. It's so good. Um, so we went with four ounces of that. One ounce of dry vermouth. If you like dry vermouth. If you don't, leave it out. Yeah. Um, ten shakes, roughly 10 to 15 shakes of olive bitters, which I didn't know existed. They do. Uh, what's the brand? I have no idea. The bitter, the bitter <laughs> truth. Something, yeah, the bitter truth. I think um, I actually got this little set when yes. I was at Aria Gin, which we've showcased before, and it has all these different bitters. And it was like chocolate, tonic, uh, peach, the olive, and there was something else that I, I can't bet remember. Peach is good. I bet peach is really good. I'll just have to shake it into my mouth. Oh, <laughs> see if it's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Tracy's uh flavor profile for those bitters is, huh? Your flavor profile for those bitters. What did you say it smelled like? Oh, I was like, what are you talking about? So, the, yeah, the olive bitters smell like when you walk into Subway and the bread is baking. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it smells like. The Italian urban cheese. Yeah, and that must be the smell. It has notes of um, thyme and sage. Yeah. That no, they why. smell really good, and then I was hungry. It's very Mediterranean. <laughs> um, and then I put all of those things together in a shaker with many much amounts of ice many much <laughs> uh shook for a very long time because i like mine fairly diluted and very cold um and then garnish with two pimento olives that are soaked in vermouth. drunken yeah 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 and we had this discussion on our so we do videos of us making the drinks on our patreon, patreon. in case you guys didn't know um but we had this discussion during the time she was making it is i would prefer mine stirred Mm -hmm. because I like 
a very clear taste of the gin. And it'll still be nice and cold if you stir it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like mine diluted. So it's all it's all up to you on totally. what you like. I want to taste the gin really hardcore. And, like, if you're not, I guess my advice is don't be afraid of martinis. No. Because I always thought, like, oh, man, a vodka martini. I don't know if I could do that because I don't really love vodka. Who does? <laughs> but, man, you get some good vodka, like a Kettle One. That's true. Or just, like, something really good. Or even with a slight flavor, like a Citron vodka or something. Mm-hmm. And put that into a martini. It's chef's kiss. It is good. Yeah. So good. I agree. Though I feel like I'll always go for a gin martini nowadays. Yeah. if The gin's good. Gin is so good. So, yeah. That's our drink today, the Dirty Wanderer. Um, we wanted to do something a little bit simple and classic. Yeah. Easy to make. And um, would we say the martini was invented in San Francisco? It was. The martini was invented in, in San Francisco. Yeah. And that was why we used that, because this story is partially set in San Francisco. And he was born in San Francisco. Which is close to home for us. Yeah. So. All right. You ready to dive in? I wish we were getting martinis in San Francisco instead of <laughs> listening to the story today. Yeah. Also, it's basically like 830 in the morning when we made these martinis. So bear with us. We... <laughs> tasted them okay they were really good they were really it's good a, it's a weekend don't judge us <laughs> no judgment this is a no judgment zone all right so we're going to talk about earl leonard farrell today farrell farrell so earl leonard farrell was born in san francisco on may 12 1897 to james farrell and francis nelson and both of his parents were extremely sick with syphilis when he was born very okay. very sick and in fact, they were both dead before he was a year old. Jeez. Yeah. So that was not good times. So after they died, he was taken in by his maternal grandparents, Jenny and Lars Nelson. And from this point, Earl would take on the Nelson name. Though, stay with me during the story. There's a lot of names for this dude. Oh, his so aliases. He's got many aliases. He The two last names kind of go back and forth throughout his life from Farrell to Nelson. But for the most part, he was known as Nelson. Um, quick question. Yeah. Syphilis is the one that eats your brain? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like deteriorates your... Mm-hmm. That's what Al Capone had. Yes, that's he did. That's why they said he was crazy. Isn't that what Hitler had, too? Uh, that sounds right. Yeah, I don't know. But it was kind of running rampant around that time um, before there was, you know, really much to do about it. Um. So Earl, like I said, would take on the Nelson name. And Jenny and Lars had other children as well. So these were his aunts and uncles. They had Willis and Lillian, who were 26 and 16. And then there were two other boys who also lived in the home, late teens, early 20s, something like that. So by the time Earl was six, the family had moved four times. So they were slightly nomadic when he was young. Um, Lars ended up dying on December 13th, 1904. And then his grandmother, Jenny, died on June 30th, 1907. So a lot of loss for him at a very young age. And this was shortly before his 10th birthday. There's also a lot of speculation that Jenny Nelson was a religious zealot and was, you know, just kind of cray-cray in the religious part of it. Okay. I'm not sure how accurate that is. Um, There may have been some, but it's hard to tell. Okay. Um, You'll see differing views on that. Um, But... She did have somewhat of an influence on his younger years. Mm. So Earl would end up living with his Uncle Willis and Aunt Amy. And I believe it was in the same house that they lived in that he just kind of inherited that house. And at one point, he also did live with his Aunt Lillian. 
And this is just as uh, also a disclaimer. Most of what is known about Earl's childhood comes directly from Aunt Lillian's testimony later in his life. Mm. So consider what you will of that. I think a lot of her testimony was skewed towards making him look like he was insane. Oh, okay. So there's probably a lot of truth to this, but it's uncertain how much. Right. I just want to say that. Exaggerated or... Correct. Yeah. So when Earl was about seven, he was very sick with measles. And when he was nine, he had diphtheria and was delirious for days. So diphtheria was known as the strangling angel of children. I don't know if you knew this. Um, As the disease advances, the toxin produced by the bacteria actually causes a thick film to develop in the throat, making it extremely difficult to breathe, essentially strangling a person to death. Do people still get that? Uh, We have the vaccine for that now. Whooping cough. Um, No, diphtheria is a little bit different. Oh, diphtheria is like the... Uh, like first vaccines you get when you're a baby. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we do have a vaccine for that now. Um, Thank God. That but it was horrible. yeah. Children were very susceptible to dying from this disease around this time. Earl was provided the antitoxin, which they did have back then. It was made from the live virus, I believe. Now we don't have the live virus version. Gotcha. Um, it's actually made from the antibodies in horse blood. Because horses, I know this is like, I I go off on a side tangent. (laughs) Horses are actually immune to getting it. But if you give them diphtheria, they will create the toxins, like the, not the toxins. They will create the antibodies for it. Wow. But not get it. And then we utilize that for us. Horses are like a Petri dish of. Apparently. Yeah. So the first dose of antitoxin did not work for Earl. And he was, he was pretty much almost dead. So they gave him another dose, which you know, I don't know how safe this was back in the day, but obviously it must have worked. He was fine. I he mean, did live. They're like, what's he going to die from the thing or we'll give him another shot, I guess. Yeah. So you don't have a choice at that yeah. point. Um, so on April 18th, 1906. So th- I'm just kind of going through his childhood. There was a lot of trauma happening here. Um, on April 18th, 1906, the great San Francisco earthquake happened. And he was right smack in the middle of that. Oh, gosh. So the family had to flee the home. They were displaced because basically this the entire city was on fire. So scary. It was very, very scary for a lot of people, and a lot of people died. Um, when Earl was 10, he was riding his uncle's bike around town, and he skidded in front of a passing trolley. His head became wedged between the streetcar fender and was basically battered against the cobblestones as the wheels continued to move for over 50 huh? feet. He's 10. How does it, how does a person survive that? Well, that's the question. So he literally had a hole in his head and the doctors told the family he's not going to make it. He's going to die. He was in a coma for five days and he did wake up, but the head trauma was very severe. I have a feeling we're going to be sad that he made it through that accident. I'm sad he made it through a lot of shit. Yeah. That's, and you will be. So as a 10-year-old, you're like, oh my God, this is horrific. Like, this is horrible. Um, And it is, because, you know, I just think of my 10-year-old, and he, just, just a yeah. tiny child, basically. So after this head trauma, he was prone to lapses of memory. He had long, sullen silences. He would just, like, stare at the wall or stare at, like, visitors that came to his aunt's house. Just creepily. Creepily. <laughs> Just choked um, creepily until they just got really uncomfortable. Okay. 
Um, he would fly into violent rages. He would refuse to bathe. He was constantly swearing. I'm just like imagining this little 10 year old. Oh my God. You know, like just swearing constantly. <laughs> You're like, sorry about the, sorry about my nephew. He's yeah. a little. Yeah. Sorry about that 10 year old that's over there swearing like a oh sailor. Sailor. <laughs> sailor. Um, he heard voices speaking to him of religion. He recited biblical passages. This is rough. Yeah. He refused to use utensils, and he ate with his hands or just basically put his face in his plate of food to eat that way. And he definitely wasn't like this before the accident. It's unclear. Okay. I think he was always kind of a strange child, but I don't think he was this strange. Okay. Yeah, I think it, it definitely, it was way worse. Yeah, traumatic brain injury is a whole, a whole other thing. It. It can create a whole other personality oh, in a person, and, and a lot of times aggressive. Um, he also had horrible and vicious headaches that affected him his entire life. Oh, I'm sure. Um, which is probably why he self-medicated a lot, as we'll see. Because he was in pain. Yeah. So when Earl was 14, he was caught with, a, with a, another kid, a 12-year-old by the name of Frank Weiss, after they attempted to rob a grocery store. So, you know, he's moving on up, okay? When they were arrested... They had four revolvers, two blackjacks, two heavy Bowie knives, dozens of keys, two jimmies, augers and bits, a small saw, two hammers, electric flashlights, black masks, two pairs of creeping socks, whatever those are. <laughs> I need some of those. An oil can, two pieces of rope, a screwdriver, and about 20 dime novels. So they were like... They were planning on running a syndicate at this They point. were <laughs> these two <laughs> kids, yeah. And they had a considerable sum of money and jewelry consisting okay. of watches, rings, earrings, stick pins, and bracelets. They so were successful. They'd been successful for a while. So who knows when he started. Man. He's been doing this for a while. Then they told the cops they intended to obtain money enough to leave the city, and they were going to embark on the train holdup end of the highway business. They were just going to go hold up some trains when they got, you know, enough money to do it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that was their plan. I mean, I don't know where he's going, but he's going places, I guess. He's not going anywhere good. <laughs> we can already tell. God. So they were sent to a detention home for, I think, like, just a night, which I thought was yeah. kind of wild. Well, they're minors, so it's kind of They were minors. Hard. So here he's 14. He's already been arrested. He's not on a good path. He drops out of school. Well, I'm surprised he's still going to school I at this know, point. I too, and I don't how know. How do you have time? I don't know how much school he was actually attending. He's creeping around in socks. He's He's got some masks. creeping socks. He should have had time for school. I don't know. So he, he had a rough time in school anyway. Yeah. He was not the greatest of students, and he was also a bully, which I know is that not surprising to you. So he basically wandered around. Went on to work at a series of unskilled labor jobs. I mean, you're 14. You're just a baby still. I can't even imagine this. Yeah. Um, he worked at a button manufacturer. He worked with a jewelry maker, which is interesting. <laughs> Probably not the right kid to hire, but No. Okay. Um, he earned a little money, but a lot of what he earned between those jobs, and of course, he was still bur- burglarizing. Right. He spent them in brothels of the Barbary Coast. At 14? At 14. So if you aren't familiar with the Barbary Coast, which is interesting, the Barbary Coast was a red light district during the second half of the 19th century and early 20th centuries in San Francisco. 
and it featured dance halls, concert saloons, bars, jazz clubs, variety shows, and, of course, brothels. Okay. Sound like it happened in place? Yeah, if I was up to nefarious shit at 14, I'd probably go somewhere crazy like that. Right, and he's right there in the city. Yeah. You know, and San Francisco's known for its salaciousness. Mm. So, yeah, there's a lot of salaciousness there. <laughs> so he's 14. Golly. Yeah, so he was he was also well on his way to becoming a sexual fiend. Oh, okay. I mean, he had a complete lack of sexual control after he hit puberty. So later notes from a psychiatrist, which there's going to be many, um, from Napa State Hospital, stated that from the ages of 14 to 18, he masturbated incessantly many times a day. He also had gonorrhea and syphilis between the ages of 14 and 18. Think about that. And, of course, he was drinking alcohol and partaking in a large amount of tobacco, which is not surprising. Okay. So, in 1915, when he was 18, he was caught looting a house and sentenced to two years in San Quentin. Okay. He was released 14 months later. So, he's like, hey, World War One is happening. Mm-hmm. It's all the rage, so to speak. <laughs> he decided he was going to join the Navy. So he enlisted in the United States Navy as an apprentice seaman on June 8th, 1917 at a Navy recruiting station in Salt Lake City, Utah. And again, there's going to be a lot of names in a lot of places. This guy got the fuck around. Okay. Okay. So just try to just just try to keep up with the time. Okay. <laughs> okay. Salt Lake City Navy. <laughs> yeah. Um, he signed up for a four-year stint to fight in the First World War. Okay. And in July, he failed to return from his leave. So not even a month later, like maybe a month later. They're like, okay, you have some leave. Like, usually it's like a night or two. Mm -hmm. He never came back. Um, And so he was listed as a deserter. He was also fingerprinted when he joined the Navy, which would come back to haunt him later. Oh, that's good. Which is actually a good thing. Yeah. He was sentenced to six months in the county jail in Stockton, California on October 9th, 1917, for the petty theft of a bike. So he was a deserter and he's out here causing ruckus, obviously. Yeah. And at this point, he was using the alias Luther Clark, which was not very creative because it was basically the name of his aunt's husband. Like, okay. <laughs> okay, buddy. <laughs> I was thinking it was like a Superman thing. I don't know if Superman was a thing back then. Oh, God. I don't think so. I could be wrong, but I don't think the Superman was around yet. It was like Clark Kent. Lex Luthor. Oh, no. It was just Luther his, it was just his uh, uncle-in-law. Just I guess that's what uncle. you would call it. Okay. <laughs> so on December 1st, 1917, he just suddenly shows up at the Navy training station at Go Island in full uniform. Where's Go Island? Um, I believe, is that Utah? I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Oh, wait. So they're like, what the he fuck He just showed up here? like he deserted and then he just comes back and he's in full he's uniform. Like, oh, he's I like, thought my leave was two months. Hey, guys. So he'd actually been away without leave for four months and nine days. So okay. I, so he's on, like, I'm done with my leave now. He's like, yeah. Can I have a paycheck? I have nowhere to go is probably basically yeah. what it was. Please so, send me to war. Yeah. On December 21st, 1917, he was transferred under guard from the training station to the Navy Yard at Mare Island, which I believe is in San Francisco, okay. for trial by general court-martial. Because they're like, you can't just show up here and expect to just jump yeah, back you in. dumbass. You deserter. Um, The specifics of the charge included the assertion that he, quote, did fail to return to his station and duty as aforesaid upon expiration of said leave and did remain absent therefrom without leave from proper authority for a period of about four months and nine days 
the United States then being in a state of war. So they're kind of pissed. Like, we're in a war right now, buddy. Yeah, we don't have time for your shenanigans. Right. So the trial took place on January 8th, 1918, and he was listed as Earl L. Farrell. He was found guilty of desertion and sentenced to be confined for a period of two years at the naval prison at the Mare Island Naval Shipyard. I mean, they take it pretty seriously. They do. And then he would thereafter be dishonorably discharged. Good. Yeah. So after four months in the prison, they were like, we are so done with this dude. And they transferred him to the naval hospital because he was acting cuckoo bananas. So they're like, we think the prison is not the right place for this guy. That does happen. He would stare into space. He stated for religious reasons that he would not work. So obviously at the prison you were doing some work. Mm -hmm. He talked continuously about the leader of his cult, though they don't know what cult or who the leader was. Okay. On May 3rd, 1918, a Naval Medical Board declared that Earl Farrell was in, quote, a constitutional psychopathic state. So he cuckoo. Okay. Um, And he was unfit for service. Now, I don't want to underscore the fact that mental illness is not extremely important thing that, and it was not looked at very well then. Right. And we will see that here. Um, So don't think when I say cuckoo, I'm not, I'm not making fun of it. I, I really feel like the system failed him and in essence failed all the people that were affected by him because he should have been committed forever. Yes. And he was not, and it was not taken seriously. So they recommended that he be transferred under proper guard to the Napa State Hospital for further treatment. Okay, okay. that was the right thing. Yeah, that's a good move. Um, Napa State Hospital was a shit show, obviously. Yes. Um, and that the unexpired portion of his sentence be remitted. So they're like, We're, we don't want to deal with him anymore. We're just going to, you guys figure out how long he's going to stay there. Right. So he was only 21 at this point. He also was suffering from syphilis, which is another problem, which does not help oh, the cuckoo-ness. Yeah. Okay. Right. So he received treatment for syphilis while he was at Napa. Like your brain is melting. Yeah. That he would later say it was very unpleasant. So you're talking about syphilis and also you have a traumatic brain injury. And probably prior mental illness before yes. even the brain injury. Right. And if his parents both had syphilis, that could have been an issue even when he was born. Right. And I'm not exactly certain what kind of treatment he got for syphilis, but I do know that around 1917, an Austrian physician introduced the treatment of neurosyphilis with fever therapy. Oh, God. Okay. By infecting the patient with malaria. Oh, God. Then treating the malaria with quinine, which so they were like, okay, it's actually easier to treat malaria than it is to treat syphilis. So we'll kill the syphilis with malaria and then treat the malaria. Interesting. So before that, though, and this could have possibly been what, what Earl had, arsenic and mercury were used to cure kill syphilis? syphilis, especially after the First World War, because lots of soldiers contracted syphilis. Yeah. So, you, I mean, no problem. We're just going to put some arsenic and mercury over a long period of time into your I body. I will say, okay. <laughs> Did we not talk about this in a podcast, mercury poisoning? I think we did. Wasn't there like a photographer or something? Yeah. That was using mercury to develop his photographs mm-hmm. and he went bananas. Just from the mercury poisoning. Right. So this is what I'm saying. There are so many How is problems. this guy even still alive? I, I don't know. even understand that at this point. There's so many problems that were not treated correctly yeah. here. Um, well, and it's like 
almost back then, did they even know? They even know what about mercury and arsenic? About that all this stuff was so harmful and I don't know. I mean, they had to know some of it. They were using it to kill something, yeah. so obviously. But yeah, I don't At know the if expense it was of the host. Yeah, I mean, research studies were not necessarily done. Things were new; they were happening. Right. Um. So yeah, it just seems like a clusterfuck for this guy's whole brain and body system. His brain is so fried. Yeah, and he does not get the help that he needs. Right. Um, nor does he want it right. at this point. Because he's violent and wild. Right. So Nelson's first commitment to the Napa State Hospital was short-lived. He was committed on May 21st, 1918, but he escaped from the hospital on June 13th. Okay. He returned or was returned. I have a feeling he was returned. <laughs> I don't think he would return on his own free no. will on June 18th. But then he escaped again on August 25th, 1918. Guys. He's an escape artist, this guy. After this escape, either that or Napa just didn't fucking care what was going on. I'm not really sure which one it is. (laughs) So after this escape, he showed up at his Aunt Lillian's house, scaring the bejesus out of her. Oh, gosh. He he basically had ripped clothes. His legs were bleeding. Girlfriend move. Yeah. So she did. I know she will continue to assist him throughout his life. It's interesting. Okay. She gave him her husband's clothing and some money because she did want him to leave. Right. Um. And also, she was frightened of him. Right. Then she called the asylum, saying, dudes, um, hello. He's here. He's here. But they were unable to locate him until October 28th. This is months later. Okay. 1918. So he was arrested and charged with desertion and burglary. And at this point, he's using the name Carl Farrell. Okay. Naval authorities transferred Nelson from the hospital at Merritt Island back to the Napa State Hospital on December 3rd, 1918. So now he's back. The next day, on December 4th, he escaped again. <laughs> what the hell? It's, it's going to be a theme. I wonder if they're getting him on, like, antipsychotic medication and stuff while he's in there. Is he, like... Do we know if he's, like, settling down while he's there being treated? I don't know. I didn't read anything about antipsychotic medication. Oh, I honestly, okay. I don't even know if how prevalent it, it was then. in the 1920s. Okay. Um, I feel like it wasn't. Um, I didn't do that deep dive, but I feel like I did in another podcast. I forget how early on this was. Yeah, and I don't really feel like there was a lot of antipsychotics at this time. So he was technically committed to Napa on May 21st, 1918, as you recall. Mm-hmm. But at this point, he spent less than three months in the asylum. Right. Okay. He's on his third escape now. Naval authorities now laid new desertion charges against him under the name Earl L. Farrell on January 4th, 1919. But then on February 6th, 1919, they recommended that the charges should be withdrawn while he was still at large. Huh? They're done. Okay. Here's the reason. The war ended officially in November of 1918. So they're like, whatever with this guy. Actually, we don't fucking care. You know what? We just don't care anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so, which isn't, it's, I wish they had not done that because he needed to be found. So, yeah, they just washed their hands of him. They're like, yeah, whatever. We don't care. So while he was still out on his escape of December 4th, Earl Farrell was officially discharged by the Napa State Hospital too. In absentia on May 17th, 1919, and get this, and diagnosed as, quote, improved on date of last escape. Okay, 
You've been arrested for burglary. You escaped within a day of returning to the hospital, but you are, quote-unquote, improved. This, to me, casts very serious doubts on the administration of an apostate hospital. If only you knew that your paperwork would be in a trail somewhere. I mean, we just can't find him, and we don't want to deal with him, so he's fine. We'll just just basically say he's discharged. Mm. So during this time, he would wander back to Aunt Lillian's house from time to time. He was just out. We don't really know what he's doing during this period of time. He's transient. He's, yeah, he's transient. He would, she would provide money for him for like a motel and clothing once in a while. Okay. She would later state that she was frightened of him and she, and she did worry about him being around her children. She had two children, but she still gave him odd jobs around the house to try to help him out. Like she'd be like, we need you to paint the inside, paint the inside. Okay. But he was so weird. Like he would just like, he'd be in the middle of painting. He would just stop. And just walk off and not be seen for three weeks. Just inexplicably. Bizarre. He would. He also started exhibiting even more bizarre behavior around this time. So he had a large fixation with reading the Bible, but there's nothing wrong with that, but he was, like, overzealous about it. Okay. He would talk incessantly about sexual matters. I told you he is obsessed with sex. Okay. He would not communicate with visitors who would come to the house. I he wonder would, how that fits in with his like religious fervor. Exactly. That's odd. It's all very weird. Um, he would just like stare into space or just stare at people creepily, which he was kind of doing when he was little too. Mm. So even with no visitors around though, he would just stop working and sit down and stare and just stare at a wall. I wonder what's going on in there. Yeah. He would get up. This is according to his aunt Lillian. Mm-hmm. He would get up and walk on his hands and pick very big chairs up with his teeth. What? He would hold them up straight in his teeth in front of people, like people who came to visit. Lillian, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, so that's (laughs) what I'm saying. That's according to Auntie Lily. What? (laughs) What? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't know. So in 1919, you know, he's out bouncing around. He's now using the name Evan Lewis Fuller. Oh, thank God. He got a job at St. Mary's Hospital in San Francisco. Oh, gee, no. Yeah. So while working there, he meets Mary Teresa Martin. They get married. What? (laughs) I'm telling you, it's so wild. Did she, like, talk to him one time? I mean, I don't think she knew the levity of this man, but she knew him. I don't know if they knew each other very long because they were married on August 5th, 1919. Okay. I just feel like one conversation with this guy and you'd be like, what the fuck? But I think sometimes he was very lucid and very normal oh, to that's people. scary. Yeah. So on the marriage certificate, she listed her information as Mary Teresa Martin of 1776 Page Street, Irish, age 35, single, and she listed no occupation. Earl Nelson listed his information as Evan Lewis Fuller, Mm -hmm. 1736, Page Street. So, obviously, they live near each other. Mm -hmm. English, age 37, born in Lansing, Michigan. And he listed his occupation as a bookkeeper in the building contracting industry. So, literally, none of that was true. They're both lying. Oh, they're both lying. Yeah. So, Mary was actually 49 when they got married. Earl was 22. Okay, yeah. guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they're both a uh, big Oh, okay. Likes. So I get it now. She's creepy, too. 
Well, I don't know if she's creepy. I don't know. Maybe she just. She's up to something. I don't even know if it's that. I think she maybe just didn't want to put her real age. I think everything okay. else was pretty correct. So their marriage was a train wreck, though. He was incessantly jealous of everyone she spoke to. Okay. Everyone. If she even just, like, smiled at the streetcar operator, like, he's, like, furious. Okay. At one point, she was hospitalized due to an illness. And I read that it was, like, a hemorrhaging illness. I have no idea what that is. I have a feeling it was probably something um, with her lady bits. But I'm not sure because it it didn't really say. Um, He was insanely jealous of the doctors. What? Yes. And he would never leave. He would get mad when they asked him to leave. Now, I did read in one report that he had actually walked in and raped her while she was lying ill in the hospital. But I didn't see that written anywhere else. I'm not sure how accurate that is. But there was one report that he did that because he's basically like, you know, you're supposed to give me what I want. And I don't really care that you're lying in this hospital bed all half dead. Okay. okay. Um, as an aside, right before he married Mary, he fell from a ladder at his job and received a second brain injury. Oh, this guy. Hit his head again. You would, Maybe the second hit will knock him back into... Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> like no, no. Like reverse the first one? No? No. Okay. There's no reset on this second Ooh, fall, okay. unfortunately. Yeah, so eventually they moved to Palo Alto, which is very near San Francisco. And they both got jobs at a school. She worked with kindergartners, and he was a waiter or a, a waiter. He was a waiter. <laughs> he was a waiter, or he was uh, also listed as like a pantry man. I'm not really sure exactly okay, what that like is. Okay, like he worked in the kitchen. Yeah. But the marriage did not get any better. It went in decline because his jealousy was out of control. I mean, she'd be out, like, hanging laundry, and a neighbor would walk by and say hi, and he'd, like, fly out there acting like a crazy person. So in early 1920, Earl, a.k.a. Evan, because that's what she knew him as, told Mary that all the other staff were conniving against him because at this point he's also starting to get very paranoid. And he said, I need to get out of here. And she's Please like, do. yeah. And she's like, you know, Goodbye. I don't want to leave. I like my job and I like my house and I don't want to leave. So he left without her. Good. He did come back soon after. But she told him to get lost. Like she realized when he was gone, I'm I'm not going to stay with you because yeah. you're acting. This is not safe. More and more bizarre and scaring me. He pretty much told her he would kill her if she didn't take him back. Okay. But she. She didn't go back with him, and he did leave. So it's unclear how often she saw him in the years to follow, but she did see him from time to time. Okay. Because she does say later that she did see him. So we don't know what those interactions were like, though. Like, see him on the street, see him at your house? Probably at her house. Yeah. Because I think he kind of wandered into Aunt Lillian's place. He wandered back there sometimes. dirty wanderer. He was a dirty wanderer. So on May 19th, 1921... Earl was arrested and charged with assault. By means and force likely to do great bodily harm in that he assaulted 12-year-old Mary Summers, who lived at 1519 Pacific Avenue, striking her with his clenched fists, violently throwing her to the floor and choking her. And she's 12? She's 12. So this is what happened. He leaves Mary, blah, blah, blah. Um, This... Who knows what he's doing in this time frame? Okay, we're, we might talk a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about what he might have been doing. Um, but he 
gained admission to the house by telling the 24-year-old Charles Summers, which was Mary's brother, Mary Summers' brother, Mm -hmm. that he was a plumber and he was sent to fix a leaking gas line. And so, you know, he was like, oh, okay, you know. Maybe the superintendent sent you. He didn't know. So he was, a Nelson was allowed to go into the basement of the dwelling. Who knows why he wanted to go down there? That's not really clear. When he gets down there, he sees Mary Summers, the 12-year-old, playing with dolls. And he attacked her with the full intention of raping her. But she screamed bloody murder. And her brother came running. And they fought each other. And then... Nelson managed to escape. He ran out. How fucking random. It was very random. And I still don't understand. And he didn't know this family? Or? No. And he, unless, unless there's way more that is not written about this story. Like maybe he's surveilling them. Or? He might have known that Mary was there. I don't know. It's very, very odd. odd. So after he was arrested, he was transferred to a deten- detention hospital. And they basically placed him in a straitjacket. And Mary and his aunt did come to visit there. And he talked incessantly about seeing faces on the wall. He stared into space. He would also say he sometimes saw snakes and voices whispered to him to kill himself, which unfortunately he did not listen to. Um, Did he, did it ever say that he was like disturbed by that? What do you mean? Like, did it bother him? Like, was he scared? Because I always think, like, you know, people who know. hear things or hallucinate things yeah. that aren't real, um, that it must be really scary and traumatizing. That's what I would think. <sighs> but he is such a different kind of a person. Yeah. It like, I wonder if that's scary and traumatizing for him I at mean, that point. I mean, it probably was. I don't know. Yeah. You know? Um, at one point while he was there, he also pulled out all his eyebrow hair. So he was definitely stressed, stressed out. Yeah. So the judge ordered Earl Nelson, a.k.a. Earl Farrell, to be committed to and confined in the Napa State Hospital. Back to your old home. (laughs) So the criminal charge against him was placed on the docket under the name of Earl Farrell on June 28, 1921, and was not removed from the docket until June 15, 1925. So once returned to Napa State Hospital... He tested double positive for syphilis. I'm not sure how a person tests double positive, <laughs> what the fuck? but that's what it said. Okay. Basically, he was rife with it. I think that's what I'm going to I'm going to take away from that okay. statement. He immediately tried to escape while he was at the infirmary for treatment. Barely a month after getting there. He's like, "Boop, I'm out." Yeah. And give me malaria again. Yeah, right. I'm out of here. <laughs> or arsenic or whatever you're yeah, doing. Yeah, what the fuck? So he actually did escape on July 14th, 1921. So he was there what? A month little over a month. He's slippery. But he was returned the same day, and it was noted on his return that he was, quote, restless, violent, dangerous, excited, and depressed, threatened to take life of wife, also to suicide, had auditory and visual hallucinations, hears voices of spirits and sees them, claims to have lapses of memory. Those are their specific notes from Napa State Hospital. In October 1921, he fashioned a wire into a screwdriver and had plotted with five other men to escape. Then they actually placed him in restraints. They're like, you're on restraint. Yeah, no no screwdrivers. Yeah. 
no plans. Yeah, no you're plotting. on restraint restriction is what it basically yeah, was. Yeah, you can't, you got to shut him down yeah. at some point. And they restricted his movements to just the, like, the backyard area. I guess going to the front yard was a privilege from okay. what I read. So after November tw- 1921, he did seem to stabilize. And the restraints in the ward were lifted in April 1922. Or did he just appear stabilized? Most likely. And I think also he thought he was probably only going to be there for a year. Mm. Um, and then the year passed and he started getting pissed off. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a note on June 1st, 1922 from Napa State Hospital stating, quote, this is the final note as patient will have been in hospital one year on June 14th. Patient is well behaved and appears to be cooperating in every way in what is done for him. Physical condition is good. But that didn't last. <laughs> he was soon caught with a saw trying to get out. Oh my gosh. And after two years of confinement, he started making noises about getting more privileges. He's like, I don't want this backyard business. I want the front yard business. Okay. Finally, after two years and four months or so, while in the society, in Napa State, he did manage to escape on November 2nd, 1923. I mean, you'd think as an escape risk, you should never give him privileges to the front yard. And I don't know if they did or not. He escaped like 700 times. Mm-hmm. He continually escapes. And he's obviously violent. He's obviously a danger to society. Right. You just never give those privileges back. No, I mean, you attacked a 12-year-old girl, probably would have killed her if she, if, yeah. if he, her brother hadn't intervened. You could at least break her facial orbital jawbones. Right. With a punch to a 12-year-old's face by I, a grown man. It's crazy. <sighs> so, it doesn't look like, after he escaped on November 2nd, 1923, it doesn't look like much effort was put into finding him. Okay. About a year and a half later, the hospital closed its file on Earl Farrell. By recording that he was, quote, discharged as improved. Again, we can't find him, so he's, he's probably fine. Out well, of sight, out of mind. <laughs> I, I mean, to be fair, it's not the hospital's business to go find people. It's the hospital's business to keep people, which yeah, they failed but to do. Um, but I'm surprised he's not being picked up by local PD or state troopers or something. Yeah, I mean, he... He was in Napa State Hospital for a forensic offense. Right. So, yeah, he should be found. Yeah. I mean, what if someone escapes nowadays from the forensic side of Napa State? They get CHP. Yeah. Or local PD. So I don't know what that, where the breakdown of that communication was. Or it was non-existent. I've taken a tour of the forensic side of Napa State Hospital. It's not a fun place to go. Yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't as forensically, <laughs> what, what's the word I'm trying to think of? You know, now it's like locked down and you have to go through the Sally Port and the, you know, I don't even know if it was, it probably wasn't like that back in the tw- 1920s. Probably not. So, now, after he left... And even before he was caught, it's difficult to determine exactly when Earl Nelson started killing. There's a lot of different variations of this. So there are two murders that could have been done 
and can be um, linked to him possibly as early as February 1920, prior to this readmittance into Napa and prior to him um, assaulting Mary Summers. But he never talked about it in no. his psychological exams? No, he never really t- he, he He, throughout all of this, he will say he's innocent of everything. Okay. Of everything. Um, so, yeah, this is just... Which is weird because he has so much other things to talk about. I, know. I mean, he can't stop talking about all the other things he wants to do. Yeah, but he's never done anything bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is later when some of these linkages start happening. At this time, they had no idea. But later, sure. they would think, you know what? This could be him. So in February of 1920, in New York City, 17-year-old Rianne Hoxie was left home alone to show prospective renters the furnished room that her family had advertised for rent. She was found beaten over the head with a blunt instrument and raped after she was murdered. The police believe that the perpetrator came to the house to answer this advert for this room and was shown the room and finding her alone attacked her and killed her. And as we're going to see, responding to a room for rent advert or a house for sale sign is Nelson's MO to the T. For gaining entrance, as was hitting women over the head and strangling them, as was post-mortem sexual assault. Okay. So we're like, wow, this could definitely fit. It's a um, pattern. A description provided to the police of the potential suspect in this New York case featured prominently the quote-unquote swarthy or very dark complexion okay. of the man and sounds very familiar to later reports that come in about Nelson. Okay. Is there, like, hot evidence? No. There's not a lot of hot evidence at all in the 1920s. They could just, yeah. (laughs) There's some evidence. Um, There was also the case of Ola Carlson, who was a 19-year-old domestic servant from Sweden, and she was murdered in Piedmont, California, on March 14, 1920. She was walking back from accompanying a friend to the streetcar line late at night. Her body was found in the morning, and she was also most likely sexual assaulted. Sexually assaulted. It was hard to tell. So after his escape in 1923 from Napa, there were two murders that are also possibly linked to him in San Francisco. Elizabeth Jones, who was 72 years old on August 22nd, 1925, and Daisy Anderson, who was 45 on September 15th, 1925. So the fact that it takes so long to catch this fucker is infuriating. As you will see. One of the reasons I think it took so long to catch him, though, is he is everywhere. He goes here, he goes there, he comes back. He's all over the United States. And he doesn't stay in one place very long. And, you know, back in these days, you didn't have, like, you know, bolos and all of this stuff. There's no, like, electronic record of where you've been. No. There's no ATM credit cards. There's no... No, and he was... 100% 100% off the grid. pings. Exactly. Yeah. So from there, from, you know, 1925, from San Francisco, it's speculated that he likely made his way to Philadelphia, where three murders are linked to him in 1925. The first was Alla McCoy. And I'm sorry, Alla is the cutest name on the planet. So Alla would be the only African-American victim and she was killed in her Montgomery home on October 18th, 1925. And obviously, 
at this time, her murder got much less publicity, probably because she was African-American. But she was found lying on a bed, one ankle tied to the bedpost. She'd been bound with rope and gagged with a towel. The towel was then stuffed in her mouth, and she had been sexually assaulted. Police noted that a room for rent sign had been in the window of her home. She was 22 or 25. Not quite sure about that. But she was a young woman. I mean, for all the ways that he's so dumb and weird, he, I mean, that is kind of a, you know, criminally smart tactic to gain entry to a home. Yeah. Just looking for a room for a rent sign. Yeah. And honestly, he does not care. His He had no type. He had no type for victims. Except female. All you had to be was female. That's it. I don't think age, race, none of it mattered to him at all. So on November 7th, 1925, dressmaker Mary Murray was murdered. She and her killer had fought in the parlor, dining room, and the kitchen before she died. So she fought hard. She had struggled violently and was covered in cuts, scratches, and bruises. And Murray was killed in the kitchen of her boarding house and then carried to the second floor bedroom. She was bound with strips of of torn cloth or rope, and a large blue handkerchief was tied over her mouth. A blue handkerchief was also bound around her ankles. She had been sexually assaulted. Murray ran a boarding house, and one of her boarders was immediately arrested because they were like, oh, must be this guy, but he was not obviously the killer. Murray was 30 years old when she died. On November 10th, 1925, Lena Weiner's daughter... Her name was Liliana, returned home from school and found her five-year-old brother sitting on the front steps of the house crying. And when she went inside, she found her mother gagged and bound and dead on the bed. What? And there were signs of a struggle. She was found the same exact day as Mary Murray. So it was like basically. Oh, my gosh. You know, Mary Murray was November 7th and Lena was November 10th. So this is three days later. So like Alla and Mary, Lena had been killed in her kitchen and bound with torn cloth that was tied with a particular type of knot. A necktie was knotted around her neck and she had been gagged. Each woman had been carried to her bed and placed there. Each was sexually assaulted after death. And each woman had a room for rent sign visible from the street. Police also noted that the murderer had stolen clothes from a male boarder in the house and some money. And Lena was only 33. Witnesses say they saw a suspicious white man in the area. And then police basically just rounded up everybody. White, black, they didn't care. Um, but then they, they realized they didn't have any. Nobody they arrested was the killer. They couldn't be linked to it at None all. None of them were swarthy enough. They were not, they were not swarthy. <laughs> so on February 20th, 1926, Earl was back in San Francisco. Clara Newman was 60 years old, and she was a landlady with a room to let in San Francisco. She had relatives over for a visit on February 20th, 1926, and less than an hour after they left, she was found dead. Nelson gained access to the house by pretending to be interested in renting the room, of course. Mm -hmm. Newman's foster son and his wife actually lived in the basement of her house, and he reported that someone had asked to see the room and went upstairs with um, with Newman. So the son had remained behind and he witnessed the man, saw the man all the whole nine. 
After more than an hour, though, his mother had not returned, and so he was concerned. He went up and found her body. He, Nelson had strangled her with a cord tied tightly around her neck, leaving a ligature imprint. So, but at this point, somebody has seen him. Lots of people have seen him. This is why it's infuriating. Oh. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's no pictures, really. People aren't taking pictures like they would nowadays. Right. But people definitely are giving these same descriptions. Okay. So, after he put this ligature around her neck, he choked her with his hands until she died. She was bruised and her clothing torn, indicating a struggle. So, the postmortem revealed an engorgement of her lungs and the right side of her heart, an unusually long retention of body heat, and an exceptional fluidity of her blood. What does that mean? I'm not sure. That's interesting. I'm eating ice. (laughs) Okay. Um, The trachea was red, and the cavity of the middle ear had been ruptured. So I basically, I think what this is saying is that she had been strangled. Okay. And that was her cause of death. Yes. When the killer gripped her throat, the hyoid bone fractured where his thumbs met, and there were deep fingernail marks on her neck, at least an inch and a half deep. Jeez. An inch and a half deep. That's crazy. He left Clara's body in the attic bathroom. She had been sexually assaulted after death. Now, Clara is sometimes considered Nelson's first victim. If you look at the lineup of victims, she will be listed as number one. Right. Now, the reason for that is possibly because this is when they really started linking the description of the killer with Earl Nelson okay. at this point. Well, and also, you said those other ones were, like, possibly attributed to him? Yes. Not definitely. Right. And there could be so many more that we don't even know about. <gasps> so Weird. it was, yeah. So it was also around this time that the Gorilla Man description started taking root. This is one of the things that he's called, the Gorilla Man. Okay. Now, witnesses describe the killer as hulking, of course, swarthy, and dark with large hands. And based on the way he moved, it was kind of like, you know, what's the right word? Like, he did he wasn't graceful when he walked, basically. Like, a, like an ape. Kind of, yeah. So that was why people started calling him the gorilla man. Interesting. So the second California victim, just two weeks later, was Laura Beale. She was a wealthy woman with a strong Christian faith. She was a church worker and a leader of the Christian Women's Temperance Union. On March 2nd, 1926, she was found strangled to death. The silk cord belt from her dress was so tight around her neck, it had become embedded in the flesh. It was wrapped twice, tied, wrapped twice again, and tied again. Wow. It was ridiculous. So Laura also had a room for rent. Her husband owned the Deer Park Apartments, and she had showed Nelson a vacant apartment. She was found dead on the bed of that apartment, and the coroner confirmed she had been sexually assaulted. She was 63. In March 1926, Nelson attacked many other women, many of whom did survive. So this is also part of the problem, that people were starting to have descriptions. (laughs) What is the word I'm trying to say? They had descriptions of him from multiple people who had survived his attack. So how were they surviving? So Mrs. D.L. Courier, and I don't have first names for these, which I think is interesting, but she survived an attack. Nelson had stuffed a handkerchief into her mouth 
and ripped a piece of cloth off her dress. He bound it around her neck to choke her. She did pass out, and she awoke to find that he had fled. So maybe somebody startled him somehow. We don't know. Mrs. E.R. Vickers also survived an attack from a man wanting to rent an apartment. We don't know how she survived. Maybe someone came in. Elsie Ellert was in her father's shop on North Street in San Jose on the same day. Nelson had attempted to strangle her but failed. Edna, yeah, he is busy. He is all over. I don't even know how the man has is as much He's energy. He's just like getting on the train and yeah, wherever he stops. Edma Martano survived a similar attack on March 13th. The killer was spotted and reported to police. So people are up in arms at this point. And take your room for rent signs down, people. I know. I know. Regina Birchshire, I think it's Birchshire, she was 21. She was attacked after she saw a man loitering near her home. She bit, kicked, and scratched at him after he climbed over an eight-foot fence in her backyard. Oh, my God. She was able to flee into the safety of her home. And this was actually his second appearance that day at her house, so he was definitely stalking her. In the early morning hours, she was in her backyard when a man appeared, and she ran into the house and told her husband. And then, of course, he, you know... Her husband grabbed his gun and went outside, and he had fled. Nelson attacked Regina an hour later after her husband had gone to work, so he was watching the house. On June 10th, 1926, Lillian St. Mary, who was 63, was also attacked. She was about to leave her home when Nelson appeared, asking about her room for rent. He strangled and raped Lillian in the rooming house. Nelson had also crushed her ribs, which pierced her lungs and heart. He stuffed her body underneath her bed. That's another one of his MOs. Police have by now arrested half a dozen men, all hoping they would be this gorilla man. But then people keep getting murdered. None of them were, yeah. Yeah. Six days later, a man with a Bible visited a rooming house at 1372 Clay Street He was described as stocky and well-built with strange blue shifty eyes and the hands of a giant. Okay. Mrs. P.A. Ford lived on the fifth floor, and he asked to see a room on the third floor. She called her husband, good girl, because the man left. He's like, oh, husband's coming, I'm out. Hmm. He said he he wasn't interested in the apartment anymore. He did not go far. He went downstairs to the fourth floor where he knocked on Mrs. Stidger's door, and he told her, I'm here to fix your phone. But she was like, yeah, I don't think so, buddy, and she was very alarmed by that, so he he fled there, too. Then he went next door. Okay, this is why I'm saying he does not even care. He went next door to Gladys Dunn, who was the manager of this apartment house. A janitor appeared, and so he ran away again. The next day, three East Bay women reported a man with a Bible had tried to rent apartments from them also. So he's just out there trolling hardcore. Crimes of opportunity. Yes. On June 24th, Nelson attacked Ollie Russell in a room at a small hotel in Santa Barbara. So now he's made his way to Santa Barbara. She was strangled with a curtain rod so tightly that blood gushed from her neck. The killer left his fingerprints in blood on a doorknob. Nelson had raped Russell and strangled her with a cord, leaving her dead body on the bed. She was 35. An L.A. police bulletin described 
quote unquote, the strangle murderer, which he's also being called as, quote, probably Greek, rather high cheekbones, dark skin and a thin face. He was also called the dark strangler. Blue eyes, large hands. Yes. Shifty. Shifty blue eyes. Enormous hands. Enormous. (laughs) The hands of a giant, which I wonder if they really were that, but yeah. On August 17th, 1926, Mary C. Nesbitt of Oakland, California was murdered. Mary was the proprietor of of an apartment complex. She was found by her husband, strangled with a towel, and raped in the bathroom of a vacant apartment. Eyewitnesses who saw the killer nearby said he was a dark and stocky man who had long arms and lo- and large hands. So this is the description that circulates. He was also described as having, quote, a peculiar smile, which had caught the attention of the mail carrier. Maybe that's because he's not really smiling. He's just peculiar. Because he has no <laughs> conscience, yeah. and it's fake and creepy. It's He sounds so creepy. He had been spotted hanging about several times over the course of a week before Mary died. So, And actually, I will say a mail carrier is, I mean, you're catching clues. If you're paying attention, oh yeah, you could really, you know, get a lot of information. Exactly. Because you know what everybody's routines are. You see people. You know when people walk their dogs, like... You know what cars are in the driveway. You see things. Yeah, and this is Oakland, so not a huge city. Yeah. Um, Because he had been in Santa Barbara, then made his way back to Oakland. Um, And Mary Nisbet was 51. Mm. On October 19th, 1926, Nelson killed B.D. B. Withers in Portland. So now he's in Portland. And I don't, and we don't know what he's doing in the interim. Of all of this. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Taking odd jobs, going to brothels, jacking off. Who knows? Her 15-year-old son found her in a trunk in the attic. Oh. What? Yeah. She was under a tray and some clothing. Is that not terrible? There was also poetry written on the wall of the attic, which I think she probably did. And at first, police believed she killed herself because, you know, you kill yourself and then crawl in a trunk. What? What? No. But it, it was determined that she had been raped and strangled. So they're like, well, duh. Yeah, she did she not. obviously can't strangle no. herself. All of her underwear and stockings were stolen from the house. And she was 35 years old. Virginia Ada Grant was strangled and raped on October 21st, 1926. She was found the next day shoved behind a furnace in the basement of her vacant house. There was no immediate evidence of a struggle, so police were not certain it was murder. But, you know, because people normally shove their fucking selves behind a furnace. No, no, dudes. Also, her earrings and a ring were missing. She was 59. On October 23rd, 1926, Mabel H. Fluke McDonald was robbed and murdered. And you just see it's just incessant. He's just blazing a trail right now of mayhem. I mean, how many are we going to go through? He's like, we're on like number 40. Yeah. It's I mean, crazy. It, it's, I'm not, I don't even know if I'm half done yet. <laughs> That's a lot. No, it's a lot. Um, So she had been advertising a room to rent. 
and she was strangled with a scarf. Her body was not discovered until days later. Her family thought she was heading to Independence, Oregon. She was supposed to be visiting family. She didn't show, so they became worried. She was found in the attic of her own home. And the same medical official ruled that both Fluke and Withers, our person before, was suicide. Okay, bye. No, she they weren't. Newspapers and police were like, no. <laughs> and she was 35. By November 18th, 1926, Nelson was back in San Francisco where he found Willie Anna Edmonds. She was a widow, and she was also trying to rent a room in her home. Neighbors saw her welcome a swarthy stranger into her home to show the place. Her son found her nude body under a bed in her home, and she'd been strangled to death with a rag. She was sexually assaulted and strangled, sexually assaulted after death. Her jewelry was stolen off her body, and she was 56. The next day, on the very next day, on November 19th, Mrs. H.C. Murray survived an attack by Nelson, though some newspapers did say that she died, but she didn't. She survived. She had been showing him the house that she had for sale when he grabbed her from behind. Nelson tried to strangle her to death. She fought back, scratching his face and hand. When she broke free, she began screaming, and he fled. She Mm. was 28. So after this, Nelson hotfoots it to Washington because he's like, oh, my God, I have another survivor situation. He found a widow who was selling her house. On, on November 23rd, 1926, he raped and killed Florence Fithian Monks. Her body was found stuffed behind a furnace in the basement of her home. Her stolen jewelry was given to two women who lived in the same boarding house as Nelson. As Nelson. So obviously he killed her and then like distributed her jewelry to people. That he So he lived in a different boarding house. He stole this jewelry from this woman he murdered and then gave it to two other women. So and they weren't suspicious of that? Well, they were. It, they finally did get suspicious because he killed Florence on November 23rd. And on December 2nd, these women went and turned the, this into the police. And they said, we think there's there might be a connection here. So on November 29th, Blanche Myers of Portland, Oregon, told her landlord that a man wanted to rent an upper floor room. She let this man in. She showed him the room. He attacked her while she was showing him the room. Her son found her body stuffed under the bed, raped and strangled with a handkerchief. Her, her murder was key because there were fingerprints here. They were found on the iron bedpost, and blood spattered the room, and a large pool formed on the floor. Myers basically bore marks of a battle for her life. Like, she fought hard, and she died at the age of 48. So, these fingerprints are pivotal. So, that's good. So, in December, Nelson has has now made his way to Iowa and then to Kansas. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know how he's getting all these places. With what money is what I want to know. On December... stealing it. Probably. On December 23rd, he murdered Almira Clements Berard in Council Bluffs, Iowa. She was sexually assaulted. A shirt was tied around her neck, and she was strangled and shoved behind a basement furnace. I don't ever want to look at another furnace in my fucking life. Oh, or he's um, train hopping. Yes, he probably is doing a lot of train hopping. Um, an anonymous call to the coroner said that she committed suicide and said where her body was. What? Which is interesting. So who knows if he made that call. 
I was going to say, is he starting to make contact? I don't know. Because he gave the women the jewelry. Yeah, he's doing is, weird shit. He's like, um, you know, it seems like he's kind of trying to show his hand, maybe? I don't know. So, hmm. witnesses did see her talking to a guy about renting a room, obviously. And police initially did think her death was a suicide, which, again, do you shove yourself behind a furnace and then kill yourself? No. I mean, strangle yourself behind a furnace. Mm -hmm. Never heard that in my life. Um, Berard was murdered just days before her birthday, which makes me sad. She was 40. Four days later, on December 27, 1926, Bonnie Pace was killed in her Kansas City, Missouri home. She had been raped, beaten, and strangled. And her body was found in a room upstairs. Luckily, she had a disabled son who lived in the home with her. He was not harmed. On December 28th, Nelson murdered both Jermaine Harpin and her eight-month-old son. What? So while in the kitchen talking, he took a mop handle and hit her on the head. Then he dragged her to the second-floor bedroom where she was sexually assaulted. So they were both her and her eight-month-old son were strangled. She was strangled with a cloth, and the baby was strangled with a fucking diaper. A cloth diaper. Guy. And pro- who knows why? Possibly the baby wouldn't be quiet. Uh, yeah. She was 28. So on April 27th, 1927, Mary E. McConnell was attacked in her Philadelphia, Pennsylvania home. She'd been strangled with a cloth and found in the upper room, hidden under a bed. The next day, Nelson tried unsuccessfully to sell a gold watch that he stole from her. Okay. She was 53. So, there is this other murder here, which is very interesting. This is a New York one. So, around this time, Nelson does make his way to New York because he is linked to other murders there. He's a suspect in this murder. 12-year-old Yetta Abramowitz. She was strangled and beaten on the roof of a five-story apartment house at 1013 Simpson Street. She died in a hospital soon after she was found. It's unclear to me if she was sexual assaulted, sexually assaulted. It doesn't say. A lot of times it wouldn't say, especially for younger victims. Mm-hmm. Um, even when you read about Mary Summers, who was attacked in the basement, it just says she was thrown down and strangled. It doesn't really say that the attempt was sexually to assault her. But he did it to every single other. Right. But then other reports you do see that. So um, the murderer escaped, but 20 detectives and many uniformed policemen were hunting for a tall young man who was said to have tried to lure several young girls of the neighborhood into dark hallways and alleyways on May 14th, 1927. So interestingly, I don't know if you've heard of Albert Fish. I feel like I've heard the name. Okay, he is also a suspect in her murder. Okay. I don't know if I will ever do an episode on Albert Fish. Now, he is a disgusting human. He's a serial killer, right? Yes. he Children. Oh. And he also was... Luring a sadist. young girls into alleyways, probably. Yeah, he actually was very into pain on himself. Okay. He would, he would derive sexual pleasure from pain on himself. He would insert needles into his own body, and they would stay there. Okay. Yeah. No, he's – if you want to listen about – there's Let's a just lot, skip that we'll, one. We'll not be doing that one. Yeah, you can listen to that one on your own time. There's a lot of uh, podcasts have done a very good job of his story, but I don't think I will ever be one of yeah. them. 
Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's, it's unclear who was involved in her murder. It's just interesting that they're both linked at that same time. Mm-hmm. So one month later, on May 27th in Buffalo, New York, Earl rented a room from 53-year-old Jenny Randolph using the name Charles Harrison. On May 30th, 1927, of course, Jenny was found beaten and strangled with a towel. She was raped and stuffed under a bed. Jenny's brother, Gideon Gillette, had met this Mr. Harrison, quote-unquote, when he first arrived at the residence and described him as, quote, about 33 years old with a stocky build, dark complexion, and black hair slicked straight back. Um, Fred Merritt, a boarder in Randolph's house, would later positively identify Nelson as Charles Harrison. So he is linked to that one for sure. On June 1st, Fannie Mae and Maureen Oswald were both strangled to death with wire. Their bodies were found in a Detroit rooming house. So now he's made his way to Detroit. Fannie Mae ran the boarding house. Both women uh, appear to have been separately attacked and were left in separate rooms on the upper floor. So basically just went from one to the other. So although neither one of them were actually hidden, specifically hidden, they were not found until June 5th. Fannie Mae was 53 and Maureen was 29. And interesting, Maureen had actually divorced her husband. And, of course, newspapers were like, he's the killer. But he was in England at the time of the murders and was not involved at all. I mean, that's a pretty damn good alibi. That's a fucking good alibi. So on June 2nd, 1927, Mary Cecilia Saitsema was murdered in Chicago, she was raped and strangled with a telephone or appliance cord, and she was found later that day by her husband. So Saitsema was in, she was in the blood spattered front living room. So she was in the front living room, and there was blood spattered everywhere, is what right. I'm trying to say. She seemed to have thrown a large metal cigar stand at her attacker. I don't know what a large metal cigar stand is. Do you? Like a standing ashtray. Like a large one? It's like, how tall is it? Oh, wow. Because it would be like, um, I don't know, the height of a side table. I just okay. realized people listening didn't see they that. They can't see your arm movements. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I would think. Okay, well, she Because they used that. to be like made of metal, and they were like really heavy on the bottom, oh. so that they didn't knock over, and it would be like your ashtray. Wow. I feel like. If that's what they mean by cigar stand. I'm pretty sure that that's what it is, because um, when she threw it at her attacker, he was cut, and there was his blood at the scene. And she was one of the few victims found on the first floor of her home and not hidden. So he might have run out of time and just had to get out of there. Um, she was 27, and she was most likely his last American victim. Why do you say American like that? That's gonna. We're going to go into that on part two. We're going to stop here. Oh, he's going uh, to another country. He's going. He, he's international? He is going to become an international piece of shit fuck dude yeah and there interestingly though there was another murder after this one that could possibly be linked to him but there's not a lot of detail on that one and i mean honestly who knows how many other murders there were sprinkled in oh it could be three times as many as you just said yeah and i'm not done with the victims but we are getting close to the end and part two i really want to talk about where he goes and how he gets caught in oh, the trial. Okay. Yeah. Um, because there's a lot to it. And I think it's it's interesting. Um, so that's why we're going to stop here. So I, 
I know it's a lot of victims, but I really wanted to highlight everyone. You, uh, yeah. Because I feel like they all deserve to be highlighted. Agreed. <clears throat> um, it just, what a terrible and s- scary time for people. Wild. And not just on the West Coast, all over. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I know my husband thinks that I'm paranoid about locking the front door every single time I walk through it. Like, oh, that's not paranoia. Like, literally, even if he's in the front yard, I will lock the door. What if somebody murdered him and then tried to get in? You have to, you have to, you have to lock it. Or what if he's just not paying attention or he has headphones on and somebody yeah. walks through the front door? I can't. Yeah. No. No, there's not. too many. Not for me, babe. It's not for me, babe. That's why no. there's locks on doors, people. And I don't do anything like. I he has to be with me for stuff. I just can't. <laughs> Like, if people are coming over to the house to, like, look at a freaking thing that somebody wants to sell, no. Oh not without God, my husband. No. no. Don't think that I'm going to even answer the front door. A kid came by, I don't know, a couple days ago. Because everybody wants to buy his truck that's out there. Oh. So they leave notes on the truck, and they're like, you know, call, call me about your truck. Like, yeah. literally six notes on the car. So a kid came yesterday, two days ago. To your house? Yeah. He just came and knocked on the front door. Get out of so here. So I checked the camera, and I'm like, I'm not answering that. No. I'll let him stand there all day. Mm-mm. Nope. I don't recognize you. I mean, even if I do recognize you and you're, like, one of my creepy neighbors, I'm not answering the door. <laughs> you have creepy neighbors? Sure. Yeah. Because I watch everybody. <laughs> Me and the dog, <laughs> we were both at the front window just watching what's going on in the neighborhood. But, yeah, no. I And I keep the back door locked all the yeah. time. Same. I keep the garage locked all the time. Like, no. It's a, it's sad that we have to live in a world like this, but obviously this is not a new thing. So when people are like, oh, you know, the world is just not as safe anymore. And it's like, no, I it's think always you're just, up. yeah, we are just not looking at all the weird shit that happened. Yeah. We just don't read about it or talk about it, but it happened. Well, and there was no social media back then. Exactly. And there was no mainstream news. So guess what? People still got murdered. Yeah. Women still had to fight for their lives. Yeah. Life was still fucking scary. Yeah. And you know what? If all it takes is a locked door or, uh, you know, an extra 30 seconds of time for me mm-hmm. to save my life, I will remember to lock the door every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it. And lock your car door when you get in. Don't get into yes. your car and look at your phone. Leave. Always lock your door and then look at your phone. If or you need to move to another location and then leave. Yeah. Because, or look at your phone. Because if somebody's watching you. That's true. They're going to follow you to your car and wait. Yeah. Just get out of there, babes. Yeah. Just get out of there. <laughs> or look at your phone while you're still in the store or wherever you are or whatever. I don't know. Don't do that either because you need to be aware of your surroundings. Yeah, just go to another location. Just look at your house. <laughs> just don't look at your phone. <laughs> and don't have your headphones in. Yeah, or have one. That's what I do when I go for on a walk at work. Yeah. I just have one headphone. But, okay, guys. Guys. Tell, tell, please be safe. Tell them where to find us. <sighs> you can email us at killerspiritspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a um, drink request, story request, if you just want to say, hey, what's up, or I hate you, we'll take it. <laughs> uh, please don't do that. Don't tell us you hate us. <laughs> um, we'll just delete your email. It's fine. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> We're also on Instagram at Killer Spirits Pod where we post pictures of the drink from today and every other day and pictures from the episodes. And where else are we? Uh, you can check us out on Patreon if Wasa you want to. 
went a little off last time. You can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash killer spirits. The link is in the description of this podcast. Um, if you would like to see drink tutorial videos and us being generally insane. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Not as insane as Earl Nelson. No, no, no. And also, <laughs> if you would like to join Patreon, even if you only do it for a month at our lowest level, um, you can get the 1 through 50 episode recipe book that is in full color. And It's beautiful. Beautiful. And when we get to episode 100, we'll have book number two. Exactly. I was thinking about giving us a, a bound version. We need a bound version. I need yeah. one in my own I, bar. Because I forget. Yeah, and also you guys don't actually need to wait until next Sunday for the new episode. It's going to be next Saturday. Oh, yeah, it is going to be next Saturday. Next Saturday evening, so. That's true. Don't hate on us. <laughs> <laughs> we love you guys so much. Bye. Bye.